Welcome to the DaVinci Hour podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Maxwell Cooper, and in this podcast series, I interview physicians, medical innovators, and entrepreneurs making an impact on healthcare. This podcast is produced by DaVinci Academy, a multimedia medical education company that provides podcasts, video courses, and digital textbooks. You can see more on our website, www.dbiacademy.com and our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash C slash DaVinci Academy Med. This podcast is sponsored by Doc2Doc, the personal lending platform designed for doctors by doctors. Do you have some big expenses in the near future? Maybe you're moving, applying to residency or fellowship, fixing up your car or home, or starting a new practice. Doc2Doc believes that traditional lenders overestimate the risk of lending money to doctors, residents, and medical students, focusing too much on the challenges of their financial past and giving them insufficient credit for the promise of their financial future. Check out Dr. Doc's personal loan options at drdoclending.com slash DaVinci. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the DaVinci Hour podcast. I'm honored this week to be joined by Dr. Katrina Furlick, um, a neurosurgeon, an author, and a chief medical officer of a digital health company called Health Prize Technologies. So Katrina, welcome to the program. Really appreciate you joining us. Thanks for having me, Maxwell. Awesome. So maybe give us a little bit of background, just like, you know, we were talking about where, how we both grew up in the Cleveland area before we started recording, but maybe like where you went to school, where you did your residency training and maybe a little bit about uh, your practice as a neurosurgeon. Sure, sure. Well, first, uh, you know, we mentioned Cleveland. I grew up in a medical family, you know, Cleveland's a huge healthcare powerhouse. So my dad was a general surgeon. Um, As far as education, I started at Cornell, uh, did my undergrad at Cornell University, and I majored in something fairly non-traditional for a med student. I uh, majored in cultural anthropology, which I think actually eventually ended up uh, influencing my career transitions over time uh, based on my perspective studying anthropology. Um, But after Cornell, which is where I met my husband, by the way, I came back to Cleveland and went to Case Western Reserve for medical school. Great four years there. It's an amazing medical school. And then on to residency at the University of Pittsburgh. And at the time, and I think still, it's the largest program in the country for neurosurgery, really huge department, um, gets patients flown in from from three different states. It's It's an amazing place to train in neurosurgery. That's awesome. So where did you end up practicing after that? Yeah. So then after University of Pittsburgh, I went to Greenwich, Connecticut, which is about 35 miles outside of New York City. And I joined a private practice there. It was part of the Yale system. So I was a a clinical uh, assistant professor at Yale at the same time that I had the private practice. But I had a general neurosurgery practice. Um, I did that for six years. And the final year of my practice was a kind of a transition year as I was transitioning into my entrepreneur role. So I, I had a great, um, you know, relatively short career in neurosurgery, but very fulfilling and was not an easy decision. Yeah, I can imagine. And, and I definitely want to ask you a little bit more about that in a, in a minute here. But I'm curious, you know, how did you get interested in like innovation, entrepreneurship? Was that something that was kind of like later when you were in attending or was that something you maybe had done some projects or something like that as a medical student or even as a resident? I'm curious how you got in, interested in that. Yeah, I have um, I have a lot of influences. I mean, the most direct influence in terms of 
my desire to start a company was my husband, because at the time I was completing my neurosurgery training. He was out in practice already, but also starting to ramp up his interest in venture capital. So at that time, I had kind of a front row seat to ideas that he was looking at. And I got to meet some of the entrepreneurs. I got to see some of the really early stage ideas and then kind of um, secondhand get to see these things grow over time. So to me, that was really exciting. I didn't um, at first think that I would do something similar, but I, I really got to see those, those ideas. And then I mentioned, you know, growing up in Cleveland, as my, my father was a surgeon, even earlier, I always had this idea that medicine was evolving. Uh, you know, he was adopting new techniques. One of his best friends was the first pediatric surgeon to ever place a peg tube. He was the inventor of the peg tube. And I would hear all sorts of shop talk around the dinner table. So, you know, that wasn't a direct influence, but I kind of was marinating in the idea of medical innovation. Um, and then I do have to also credit Pittsburgh because as a very um, kind of cutting edge program, the attendings there were, were very much into always trying the new navigation equipment or um, new approaches to, uh, to different uh, you know, tumors or different spinal instrumentation techniques. So I was always exposed to the idea that there's new ways of doing things, new devices. And so um, I, that was just part of my training. That's really cool. Um, so it sounds like it was an early interest that, that, like you said, marinated over time. I guess what kind of areas of innovation were you kind of interested in? Did you kind of play around with some ideas or was it more just kind of kind of just exploring different different possibilities at first? Yeah, it was it was honestly a little bit messy at first. I, I knew I was excited about starting a company. Uh, it, it took me a while to realize that eventually I would do that full time. Um, I toyed with the idea because I love neurosurgery. I never thought I would do anything else. Toyed with the idea of, of maybe doing both. Um, and I'm not as good at parallel processing as some people are. Uh, so the idea of being a part-time neurosurgeon, I thought also was not something that patients would be excited about. So it was a tricky decision, but, but to go back to your question, I, I really spent a good year looking at different ideas as I was still practicing. I would visit tech transfer offices at universities. I was meeting local entrepreneurs that were kind of also at these tech transfer offices, poking around, looking for their next opportunity, getting to know the network of people in that space. And at first, naturally, I was drawn towards the idea of surgical devices, surgical innovation, just naturally. But I happened to fall into um, a patent portfolio that was all around gamification for healthy behaviors. So the idea of bringing kind of these consumer gamification ideas into healthcare. And this came out of a, uh, a place called Walker Digital. So one of my co-founders brought this patent portfolio. And I thought, gosh, that's not some not a space I was thinking about in terms of healthy behaviors and specifically medication adherence, which is what my company focuses on. But this patent portfolio started me thinking about how, as a surgeon, I was always at the end of the line taking care of patients many times after they had not taken care of themselves, not necessarily a fault of their own, but their medication uh, was not managed well. Their other behaviors uh, led to a poor outcome. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool to be on the other side of that equation and you know, prevent these downstream complications? So I ended up um, starting a company called Health Prize, which is in the digital health realm and not at all in the surgical device as I originally had, 
I thought, but it ended up being very fulfilling and uh, and pretty exciting. That's that's really cool, and that's really cool how that kind of evolved. I, you know, I'm curious. You kind of touched on this. Is is it common for neurosurgeons to get? I mean, because you're you're so busy. I mean, I I rotated on neurosurgery in medical school and really seriously thought about doing it. And I guess one thing that one thing that kind of held me back a little bit was just it seems like you have no time for really anything else. <laughs> and like you said, like I feel like the part time neurosurgeon that's kind of Maybe if you're like really academic and you have like residents and fellows that can do a lot of things for you, maybe that I feel like that's kind of hard to do. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So it wasn't, you're right, it wasn't a great fit with private practice where really patients have to come first and it's really hard to go part time in, in, in this particular field. So that is what led to me doing my company full-time as co-founder and chief medical officer. But again, I, I said it wasn't an easy decision. I wouldn't necessarily re- recommend it for everybody to, to do such a, a stark transition. Um, that's the path that I took and was quite exciting, but partly because neurosurgery is is so hard to do part-time. Yeah, sure. That makes sense. I've, I've talked to a couple of physician entrepreneurs on the show that, that kind of face the similar situation. They say kind of similar things. Uh, like one was, I don't know if you've heard of Amy, Dr. Amy Baxter, who she invented like the buzzy and vibrocool like ah. devices. And uh, she was like on Shark Tank and stuff. And she was a PDR physician. And then she was also running like these NIH clinical trials. And she's like, it was just too much. Like she like kind of like what you said, a similar dilemma. Like it just didn't feel like you could devote what was necessary. And just like what you're talking about with patients probably don't want a part-time neurosurgeon. <laughs> that make, that <laughs> that makes sense. I, I commend you for that. Cause I feel like there's probably some physicians that maybe their ego gets the better of them and they, they think they can do it all. And something, you know, we're all human. Something gives, I guess, at some point. <laughs> yeah. Something does have to give and whether it's, you know, family or the startup or your practice, but I'm, I'm, when I have a responsibility like to patients, I'm just so focused on responsibility patients. And sure. it was very hard for me to juggle that. So yeah, but you, yeah. it's it's more doable in academia, I think, depending on the program, obviously, if if you do have a lot a lot of help. I mean a lot of neurosurgeons do research and because of that they are technically somewhat part-time um depending on how much research they do. So it is possible. Sure, sure. Um, so maybe tell us a little bit about like I think you touched on this, you know, like medication compliance, you know, patient education. Um, what kind of let, what were, tell us about like the early days, essentially of like how you guys started doing this company. I mean, you were one of the co-founders, so you were there from the very beginning. What was kind of, uh, the impetus for you to start this and get involved and, um, and just kind of maybe go from there. Sure. Well, I mean, all doctors understand kind of implicitly that there's a problem, right? You, you, you tell somebody they have high blood pressure, you tell them to take the medication every day. And then for all sorts of reasons, it doesn't work out. Okay. And then their blood pressure is not well controlled. That's just such a common scenario. All doctors know. Um, But what I didn't realize was, was the breadth of the problem and that it really affects all conditions. You know, even, even women on um, adjuvant therapy for breast cancer are not 100% adherent for all sorts of reasons. Um, And that's, that's where the problem gets very interesting was, is a, if you ask the normal person, doctor or otherwise, why don't patients take their medication? They almost always say cost as first thing that comes to mind, side effects also, um, and just forgetfulness. Those are kind of the the big ones that come to mind. Um, But what I realized after doing a lot of research, I spent months on PubMed looking at all the academic research on, on this and talking to experts, that it's a very complicated psychological problem. It's really a failure of human psychology more so than cost. 
Um, I know you had Mark Cuban on, and uh, and and so clearly cost is an issue. I mean, no no question. I'm not downplaying that. Mm-hmm. But there's actually been trials to show how big of an issue is cost. What if we made medication free? That was actually published in the New England Journal of Medicine. There was a randomized controlled trial of all medication for free after a heart attack, and then another arm where patients had to pay all their usual copays. And the free med intervention did make a tiny dent in the problem, like it increased adherence by four to six percentage points, depending. So it certainly didn't cure the problem. It made a dent in it. So I quickly realized that cost is not the main concern, even though it is a concern. And forgetfulness is something that might make an otherwise adherent patient go from 90% adherent to 85% adherent. But that's not actually even really the big problem. Those aren't the patients that that really need an intervention. Uh, The biggest problem is people quit altogether or they never even fill the first prescription. And that's not always, again, cost. It's not forgetfulness necessarily. It's really hesitation on so many levels. And what I find most interesting, it's actually the same issue that causes people not to save for retirement is that it's what we call present bias in behavioral economics. We kind of focus on the present and the reward of sticking with medication is a long-term reward. It's really hard to see the benefit of, you know, cholesterol medication, preventing a heart attack 20 years from now, if you're age 40, really, it's really a psychology problem. uh, In addition to cost, forgetfulness, worry about side effects. And it's the psychology that we really focus on in motivating patients intrinsically and extrinsically to to motivate long-term behavior. That's really interesting. You know, I I think when I became a third year med student, you know, and you start doing your rotations, one of the most kind of shocking things to me was was the like non-compliance among patients with med because like you don't think of that as like, oh, you might you just assume people take their meds. And I remember, and then as I've, you know, obviously as I've gone through my training, I've learned that like you've talked about, it's a much more complicated issue. And I I agree, like I've seen it firsthand, the cost thing. I I work at a part, we cover a county hospital here in Atlanta at Emory called Grady and We'll give patients like, you know, a 30 day or even more supply of meds and it, some of them still don't even take it. In. And like you said, there's just deeper issues there, you know, whether it's, you know, psychological or, or whatnot. And, um, I think it's great that like, you know, there's now focus on using technology to kind of help, you know, with these, some of these other issues to help with compliance. I, I'm curious. So how maybe kind of walk us through, like, how does it work? Is it like an app? Is it like a website? Like how does that, how does it all like the, at least on the patient end, how does that work? Sure. So it's a, it's a digital platform. So you can, you can tap into it on your phone, on your laptop. It's a, it's a web application. So they don't actually have to download an app, but once a patient joins and they're either, you know, sent a link to join either because of a medication that they're taking from the pharma company or through their payer, they join health prize. And then on a daily basis, they'll get some form of a prompt, like an email saying, did you take your medication? And that automatically gets them into the system. If they say yes, they, you know, we, we mark it on the calendar. They got a point for that day. But then once they're in, this is really the more important part. They are motivated to engage with the program. And I mentioned we combine education with gamification and also incentives. So we're kind of tying in this behavioral economics um, as well. And what that does is it makes it fun. And at first we had a lot of trouble arguing to bring this sort of fun factor into healthcare, especially with with medication, but it turns out patients love it. Um, And the idea of leaderboards and streaks and taking a quiz about your hypertension to get additional points, 
for many people is, is, you know, it only takes a minute, a minute or two out of the day, but it's kind of fun. It's lighthearted. Um, we try to sprinkle in some fun facts, not just hitting you over the head with high blood pressure content. Um, and you wouldn't believe how much patients engage and, and, you know, see where they're on the leaderboard and, and try to get a streak of days and make sure they get every weekly quiz, every weekly survey. So that's basically in a nutshell, what we do. Um, but kind of on a, on a higher level, what we're accomplishing is motivating patients with intrinsic motivation, which is the education, which is eventually the more important form of motivation. But the extrinsic motivation, we really excel at as well. That is the points, the prizes, the gamification, the fun factor. And that's what a lot of other digital health programs don't do. They're kind of boring. And our engagement rates are really through the roof. I mean, several times a week, people coming into our program on average um, to engage with it. So that's, you know, that's kind of our real strength is that we've created a really sticky and fun program. That's really cool. That It kind of reminds me of like the, like the Fitbit or like the whoops out there where, you know, the people count the steps and then they like compete with their friends. Like, oh, hey, I did this many steps. Well, I'm going to beat that, you know, tomorrow and kind of in a, in a way it intrinsically motivates people to exercise or just get out and move around more. So that's, that's really cool. That's really cool how you've kind of in integrated that concept into medication compliance and, and uh, patient education. Yeah. And we were really the, you know, one, one reason I was interested in, in going into this medication adherence space in the first place and the healthy behavior space is that at the time when I co-founded the company, especially back then, there was almost no creativity in the space. I mean, basically the interventions to motivate somebody to take a medication was a copay discount or some sort of special pill bottle. That was literally all that was, it was so, it was so uninspiring. And then once I realized this is really at heart off, you know, often a psychological problem, you know, failing to, failing to understand the long-term benefit of a medication is, is often the challenge. And so we entice people with short-term incentives to get them over that hump and then form the habit. And then the intrinsic motivation kicks in once they understand it better. That's awesome. I'm curious, have you guys done any like uh, even internal like studies, like seeing how like pre and post like usage, like how like, re you know, retention rates and, and compliance rates have, have improved? Yeah. Yeah. We've done a bunch of studies internally. And then more recently, we did one in collaboration with um, IQVIA, which was formerly IMS Health and one of our former partners, Berengal Ingelheim. We have a, a very long standing several year COPD program. And we basically looked at a year's worth of health prize patients. And then we did very, very careful um, matched pair controls. As you can imagine, you either have to take patients as their own control. So get a year's worth of adherence data, put them in health prize, get a year's worth after. That can be a little bit tricky. Um, we decided to do match pair controls where we took patients and tried to match them on all the usual things like comorbidities, age, gender, but also markers of healthy behavior. Like what were the medication taking behaviors before? Are they the type of patient that gets the flu shot, the mammogram, you know, the PSA, other markers of, of healthy adherent behavior. And in that study of COPD patients, we had 44% uh, increase in adherence compared to the matched pair controls, wow. which is a larger delta in adherence. I, I've been reading the literature for decade for, for over a decade. People usually get single digit improvements. Like if you make drugs free, you get a little, like a single digit improvement. So 44% was, was a large Delta. Um, but even more importantly, the chance of a patient discontinuing was 47% lower. Wow. So the, 
you know, the stickiness is what, you know, the stickiness and the motivation factor is what we're really going for. And what's interesting is this is a bit of an aside, but, you know, when you talk to payers, um, you've probably heard of star ratings, medication adherence is one of the things they look at and they try to get above 80% or, or so. But patients who quit their meds or who never filled the first script aren't even part of the equation. It, they're, they're hard, they kind of fall off the radar. Um, but if you think about it, those are the patients you really want to get into a program like ours, not just patients who are 80% compliant already. You want patients who took the meds for three months and then quit, or they never filled the first script. Those are the really difficult patients and the most the most valuable ones to get into a program like ours. Sure, definitely. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, you know, this is a much bigger jump going from like 30 to 90% versus 80 to 90%. I'm curious, maybe tell us a little bit about your role as chief medical officer, like in, in this specific case, like what, what does that involve? Maybe that's evolved over time as, as you, you know, the company's grown and everything, but kind of like, what are your maybe like day-to-day and then also long-term kind of responsibilities? Yeah. You hit the nail on the head in terms of it evolving over time. I mean, in the, in the early days, um, it, it was me and my co-founder, Tom, and uh, he was the CEO because he had, he had started other companies in the past. Um, and I was kind of learning, learning the business and on the job. So I was kind of like the dumb intern again, having to ask dumb questions about, about business as I was learning on the job. So I, as chief medical officer in the beginning, was really doing everything with my co-founder. And we quickly hired people that, you know, could do the software, building the software, uh, hired our first sales guy. Um, but in the beginning, I was helping create the sales decks. You know, I was I was the one communicating the breadth of the problem to the farmer partners and the you know payers as to why they need an intervention like ours. So in the beginning, I was kind of jack of all trades, even helping with um, you know all the brainstorming and how how are we going to tweak the product. And I was literally the first customer service person as we did our, our pilot. And I, w- I wanted to field incoming questions from patients directly. I wanted to see what they were saying, what they liked, what they didn't like, problems they were having. That was really fun for me. So um, that then eventually evolved to doing just the purely medical angle. So I oversee the, the health content, of course. We have medical writers that write the content. I oversee it. Um, I'm involved with PR in as much as we're communicating about the problem, communicating about why our, our solution um, kind of underpins the, the psychological um, issues with adherence. And then we've transitioned more from the pharma uh, clients to payer clients over time. So we're doing both now. And so I've helped with that transition because in, in the payer space, we're, we're trying to attract patients that have multiple meds, multiple conditions, Whereas pharma, we were focused on one condition, you know, one medication per patient. So there's all sorts of transitions over the years that that I've I've had my hand in. Um, now, kind of more specialized in the medical in the medical realm. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it sounds like you know, in the early days of a company, I, from what I understand, you know, you're kind of wearing multiple hats, which it certainly sounds like you were doing. <laughs> and then... yeah, yeah, and, and, and obviously, this is a, I failed to mention you know, the fundraising. Obviously, is you're, you're starting mm. with. <laughs> A tiny amount of seed funding. And so, um, you know, learning how to pitch the idea to, to potential investors and that, that was all, you know, part of, part of my role. So it, uh, it was, it was fun. Um, and I, I have to say the early years were the most exciting because I love being on the, you know, the steep part of the learning curve. I loved residency for the same reason. You're kind of always learning something new. And the same was true with the startup, especially with me being green and at my first company, um, I was constantly learning. I was I, on a daily basis, probably looking up a- 
acronyms I didn't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah so. business has all these acronyms. It's it's kind of it's it's probably close to medicine in a way too. We have all these like abbreviations and things. I'm curious how how did did you have any like prior business training at all? It doesn't it like it doesn't sound like you really like you kind of just did medicine and neurosurgery and then I guess how did you like you know, how did you learn on the job? Because like you said, I thought that was an interesting comment you made. Like it was almost like intern year all over again. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, I mean, well, well, I mean, the first thing is obviously some doctors, they want to be the sole co-founder and then CEO. That's a different scenario where y- you might do well to have an MBA or some sort of more formal training or, or previous experience, for example. Um, I knew right away, you know, as I was going to tech transfer offices, meeting different entrepreneurs that I would do best partnering with someone who had experience already. So my co-founder had already been in a few different startups, had some successes along the way. Um, He was a former lawyer, so he was really good at the the legal aspect of of the company as well. So I knew I would be chief medical officer, and I knew I certainly had to learn enough about business, um, you know, spend time with the accountant so I could learn, you know, how to read a balance sheet, learn all the acronyms, as I mentioned. One thing I didn't expect was how fun, again, being on the steep part of the learning curve, the business strategy would be. That was really like in the beginning of the company, we knew that we were going to tackle medication adherence. We knew it was going to be this combination of gamification education. But honestly, we had no idea exactly what we were going to be selling, who was going to pay for it and how we were going to charge for it. I mean, deals were all unknown. And so kind of feeling our way through that was was really was really actually fascinating for me and to be an active part of of kind of designing how the business would run was really interesting and you know one one other thing i'd add is you know from the from the physician perspective um in the early years we realized that physicians would likely value the program knowing their patients were on it so if they were prescribing a medication and there were two alternatives we'd realize they'd actually probably value the the medication that had this the service wrapped around it. That's not why we formed the program, but we realized that that getting doctors to help recruit patients into programs, knowing that they would act as kind of a physician extender. You know, you, you barely spend time with your doctor, but with HealthPrize, they're they're constantly on the on the platform, um, reinforcing the messages that the doctor might say. So we realized doctors would value would value our service as well. That's awesome. I'm I'm curious from the from a payment standpoint. So. Uh, you know, I noticed on your website, you guys have partnerships like you were, and you were mentioning this as well, like with pharmaceutical companies or with uh, payers as well. Is that, is that how you guys essentially make money or, or is it through like individual patients paying for like a subscription? I guess, how does that, how does like the, I guess the business model, if you were, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what we toyed with a lot in the beginning. And I was pretty adamant as was, you know, our, my, my co-founders about not having patients pay because first I didn't think they'd want to, um, you, you especially patients that aren't already excited about starting a medication, why would they want to pay for a medication adherence service? So I I knew that wasn't going to be a good business model. And then if you think about it, you know, who are the big players? It's going to be the insurance company paying for it, the pharmaceutical company paying for it. From my physician standpoint, as long as the patients were engaging, I was less concerned about who was paying for it. But we quickly realized a very interesting point that as we pitched ideas to payers and pharma, it was gonna be a lot harder to prove our value to the payers at the early stage because they wanted proof that we could cut costs, for example. 
you know, showing a little bump in adherence, well, that just means the patient's slightly more expensive because they're, they're, they're buying more of their medication, right? Yeah, eventually they're going to be less expensive because they're not in the ER, you know, for their COPD. But proving the value was going to be a long slog. And so for an early stage startup, we're like, oh, they understand adherence is important, but they're going to say, show me you can cut costs. And that that seemed like an insurmountable task. Whereas when we spoke to the pharma clients, um, they they said, show me you can, you know, if the average person fills their Lipitor 2.5 times, show me that patients on health price, you know, fill 3.5 times. So we're like, oh, that that seems easier. So that was a quick, that was our quick decision as to which major company to have pay for the medication adherence platform, eventually transitioned to payer. But we started with, with pharma because we realized it was be easier to prove our value. And, uh, you know, that, that was actually quite easy to prove our value. Um, but getting back to how we, how we charge, it's, it's kind of a software as a service model where we, we create the platform um, for an individual program that it is typically a per, per member per month or per patient per month. And then we deal with the incentive cost as well. So uh, different pricing for different, different um, programs, different models, but that's the general, general gist of it. Gotcha. I imagine also that like saving payers money that probably did that help at all with fundraising or at least at certain stages. And I'm wondering like how some of this also played into that, like your experience with kind of going to investors and convincing them to, to get on board with you as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's always, that's always difficult. You know, and so, you know, people that already, you know, had some interest in healthcare and some knowledge of healthcare were, you know, were, were the, the better targets for investment. You know, it, it, it did take a long time to prove that we could, you know, make a dent in, in the problem. So at first investors were, were just believing in us as entrepreneurs and believing on us that there was a huge problem, a huge unmet need and very little innovation in the space. So we were a very early, you know, we were the first ones to bring gamification to the space. The idea of combining gamification and education and healthcare was, was very new. People were very skeptical of it, but forward thinking investors liked the idea of kind of being first in a space to do something really innovative. So that's what they were banking on, you know, with the hopes that the ROI would 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 come for our customers. Interesting, interesting. I guess would you say that the biggest challenge you've had to overcome in some ways is kind of convincing those those payers that this is this is cost effective, or or were there other kind of major challenges as well that you've you've faced? <laughs> yeah, a bunch of challenges. Um, I would say in the very beginning, surprisingly, one of the main challenges was convincing people that this problem really was as big as it was. There was almost a disconnect between, you know, industry, whether it was the payer or the pharma company, and all the academic papers that were coming out of universities where there were kind of small scale studies of, of this problem. Um, there's a center at Penn that is all about health incentives and behavioral economics that was kind of churning out some papers, but the industry leaders didn't really read those papers, at least in our in our experience. So they were kind of, there was a disconnect there between them understanding the scope of the problem and the sort of innovation that we could bring to it. So the first step was proving that adherence was a problem across pretty much all conditions to varying degrees. So we would, you know, go into various pharma brands. If it was hypertension or diabetes, they'd say, yeah, we, we know there's a problem. If it was, you know, MS, for example, or 
um, hepatitis, they'd be like, is that real? You know, they, they sometimes were a bit skeptical and hadn't read some of the studies on adherence, that adherence is a problem across all sorts of conditions to varying degrees. I mean, not, not as bad as hypertension with the, with the more silent conditions, but it's a challenge across conditions. So part of my role was becoming an expert in the problem and then communicating that to show, you know, even your brand has a, has a serious issue with this condition. So the other was that we're, we're dealing with complicated clients. I mean, this is something that that's not unique to health prize. This is anyone trying to, 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 you know, sell into payers or pharma. Uh, these are just mammoth institutions and you're jumping through multiple hoops, not just the brand or somebody in the payer space, but then there's MLR, which is medical legal regulatory. There's outside vendors that the large companies work with that take on some of the roles and you have to work with them. And it's, it's one hoop after another. So I would say one of the major challenges was, was closing deals in, in a relatively reasonable amount of time. I mean, this takes months upon months to close these deals. And as a startup, that's obviously challenging because you're, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of churning through your, your cash as you're trying to land clients. So that's again, not unique. That's a kind of one of your selling into these difficult clients. There's also employee churn at these companies. So you kind of convince somebody that they love health prize and then they switch jobs internally or they switch to a different company. And that happened more, more often than not. It was, it was, it was amazing. So all these sort of setbacks are just practical concerns that you start to realize as a, as an entrepreneur um, that kind of throw, throw a wrench in the works at, at uh, times. But, you know, if you persevere, you, you, you get the first client, you prove, prove your value and the next one comes on. Yeah. I think that's an excellent point that it's, you know, no, you you don't you typically you see the finished product when it comes to entrepreneurship and not you don't see the very torturous bumpy road that that entrepreneurs go through in the background on the way to their to their success. Completely, yeah, that is that's yeah that's that's a challenge. I mean, that's, and it's a fun challenge. It's kind of like when you're going through residency, you understand the challenges of of you know that particular field. There, these are just business challenges that that uh, are pretty common in startups, but it's it's fun learning the ropes. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, I'm curious, I guess, what's your advice for physicians who are maybe interested in like the digital health or like innovation and like, I guess, learning more about it, but, you know, maybe keeping their, you know, keeping their clinical skills up, but also like kind of, even if they're thinking about just kind of dabbling in it and, and learning more about it, what's, what's kind of your advice for that? Yeah. I mean, reach, reaching out to other physicians that have done similar things, like, like myself, they're, obviously major conferences that you can attend where you can get exposed to a ton of startups all at once, in addition to, you know, bigger industry leaders, um, things like health 2.0 or health conference, HLTH or HIMS. that, you know, there's, there's a number of health tech and digital health conferences that are great for networking. And now kind of hopefully post post COVID or moving in, moving into post COVID um, these conferences are back up and running. So those are, a really valuable way of kind of intensely interacting with a bunch of people at once and just asking a bunch of questions. Again, it's, you have to be a little bit, um, you have to have a thick skin and not worry about looking dumb by asking dumb questions. The nice thing about being a doctor and transitioning into the space is if you ask a dumb question, people, people might think the question's dumb, but they don't think you're dumb. <laughs> They're like, okay, this is a doctor. This person must be relatively smart. They're just asking a dumb question. So, um, 
so you do have to just be willing to ask a lot of questions, be humble and, you know, seek out, seek out answers. A lot of cold calls, you'd be surprised, especially if you're, you know, a doctor and you want to talk to a doctor or entrepreneur, a lot of them will be interested in talking to you just because they'll, they'll understand where you're coming from. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. It's, there's this kind of tradition in medicine where to like, where, no matter where you're at, if you're at like a further stage, you kind of pay it forward, if you will. So that, I think that that that's cool to hear that that happens in that that kind of area as well. I'm curious, do you do you find you know because you touched on this a lot that like some of these companies or or the clients you worked with they didn't they essentially didn't know what they didn't know that they you know like for example compliance is such a huge problem. Do you find that companies are very interested in kind of the physician perspective because they maybe even maybe they may not totally know what they don't know, but they may want to see if they're missing something or even just knowing the end user. Um, have you seen that uh, with some of the companies you've interacted with? Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's, I think that was an important part of my role, especially in the earlier days, trying to convince our first couple of clients was, was doing all the research, you know, on the particular condition that they were involved with. And, you know, I'd collate all these studies and kind of present them neatly so they could, they could digest it quickly and just coming as the physician expert, I think, had a lot of credibility than if it was, you know, maybe the CEO trying to explain the same thing, even though he could have certainly done that. I could have prepared it for him. Um, the fact that I was the one that read the articles, you know, really understood the problem. And, you know, I really took it upon myself to become an expert in the space, even though as a neurosurgeon, I knew a little bit about it. I certainly was not an expert. Um, so but really understanding the research behind it. Was something I could communicate to, say, a pharma brand manager or somebody in the payer space who knew there was a problem but didn't really understand the scope or had a very superficial understanding. And I think they they really valued us as a resource in that realm. So we were constantly giving them articles. Um, I would also, you know, we had trouble, you know, going to oncology brands. You know, I mentioned this is across conditions, even patients who are on more of a chronic. Uh, oncology med, like for, you know, CML or something, they, their, their adherence rates are not as high as you'd expect. Um, and outcomes obviously are completely dependent on as high of uh, adherence as possible. So that was an area where I actually did a, um, I did a patient survey of oncology patients and said, would you interact with a program like this? Or is this not serious enough? Cause we're dealing with cancer and overwhelmingly the patients that we interviewed said, yeah, if, if patients with hypertension have access to this, why can't we? And so we took this back to, you know, various oncology brand managers and they were a bit shocked because their first impression was you, you can't do anything fun, gamified in oncology. This is serious business. And of course it is, but, but you're trying to motivate patients. You're trying to, you know, entice them. You're trying to um, not hit them over the head every day with you're a cancer patient, but 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 make it slightly lighter. And so that was kind of probably the biggest the biggest hurdle. But um, again, we kind of served as a resource to communicate the problem and did our own um, patient survey to prove that that patients would like it. Yeah, I think that's interesting. And I think that's an excellent point you make about how this compliance is not, you know, you typically people would think, like you said, hypertension, maybe diabetes, but even, you know, as a neurosurgeon, you appreciate, I mean, I remember as an intern, you know, I did a lot of general medicine, like even like epilepsy patients, like who wouldn't take their anti-epileptics and you like, you would, again, you would think, you know, you're having a seizure if you don't take this stuff. Like it's such a, obviously a 
horrible experience and disruption and everything that, but again, you know, and I, like we were talking about, there's, they're multifactorial, but even things I'm sure, I'm sure that's really interesting how you brought it back to, you know, like oncology clinics and things and, you know, how they, maybe they didn't even realize that their patients were having such issues with this. That's, that's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, there's even, there's even a fascinating research in glaucoma patients that have already lost vision of one eye and they're not, they're not hundred percent adherent with the drops in the other eye. Um, and again, it's, it's not the patient's not dumb. It's not necessarily because they, they can't afford it. It's some of it is just getting into the routine. Some of it is they don't fully understand the link between the medication and the better outcomes. Some people just have a cultural you know, distrust of medication. That's, that's a, that's a real one, a cultural, you know, distrust of the doctor that prescribed it. That's a hurdle to get over. And I remember seeing patients with hypertensive hemorrhage all the time. And, you know, I wasn't able to interview the patient because they were comatose, but I'd interviewed like the wife and she'd say, he's just not a pill person. It would be some sort of blanket statement like that. And it was just heartbreaking. Um, and again, I'm not blaming the patient here. There was some sort of breakdown in the communication as to why the medication was so important and to see kind of years worth of non-adherence leading to, to bleeding in the brain, or at least being a major factor in that. I'm not saying it was the only factor. They could have been a smoker in addition, but, but knowing that, that this could have been prevented was, was, was heartbreaking. But again, it's, that was more of a, you know, psychological issue. If someone says, I'm not a pill person, you got to try to get to the reason as to why, why not? Yeah, definitely. I'm curious, have you, as we're talking here, I'm, I'm wondering, have you looked into any other types of like physical therapy, for example, or cause I've talked to friends of mine who are like orthopedicists and they say, you know, they wish their patients would be more compliant with uh, physical therapy or things like that. Um, I'm curious if you've kind of explored any of those types of options as well. Yeah, definitely. That, that would be a great space to get into. We're, we're not going in that space. Um, we, what we what we've expanded into is more the other healthy behaviors. I obviously mentioned we have this core competency and you know hard data and adherence. We we track refill rates, you know, very hard data in this, but we're going into the softer things that are harder to harder to um, track, like you know diet, exercise, other healthy behaviors. Uh, you know, having diabetics make sure that they test their glucose, hypertensive patients check their blood pressure at home. So those sorts of behaviors that kind of are in and around the same conditions that we're, we're dealing with already. Um, but I agree with you. Uh, there's all sorts of other realms in medicine, like physical therapy that, that could use an intervention like this. I think the business model might be a little bit trickier. Um, just thinking off the top of my head, um, in terms of who pays and how, but that uh, there are all sorts of be healthy behaviors that that could require that would you know do well to use our intervention that combines the intrinsic and the extrinsic motivators. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I'm curious um, as we wrap up here, what what's kind of your uh, like you know next six months, twelve months? What's your kind of hopes with the with the company? Where are you hoping you guys where things go, if, if you will? <laughs> yeah, well, I I kind of a. Uh, mentioned a little bit that we are going more into other healthy behaviors. So that's a big push right now. Um, we're so strong in the medication adherence space that we are now, you know, pushing more into the diet and exercise realm um, because we think that's just a more holistic way to treat the patient, especially in the payer space, as opposed to the pharma space. We're expanding more into pharma and really a kind of one of our challenges is going from, you know, single medication to, the whole medicine cabinet that patients might be on. Um, so that's that's our our next challenge is, is really kind of 
nailing that and making the user experience um, really seamless, despite kind of a slightly more complex um, system. That's really cool. That's really cool. You know, I want to ask you, you, you know, you've had this kind of unique career path, if you will. You know, you started out in neurosurgery, then you wrote a book um, that was very popular about, about your experience as a, as a neurosurgeon. And then now you've kind of segued into digital health. I'm curious, like, I imagine probably this wasn't all planned from the very beginning. And I'm curious, like how, <laughs> I guess, how have you been able to really pursue these kind of like, I mean, if one person does one of these things in their lifetime, it's probably a great accomplishment, but to kind of pursue all of these things, how, how is that like, maybe kind of walk us through a little bit of like the path or how that kind of maybe it was more just serendipity and you took the, you took the opportunity. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, was, it partly was serendipity. Like I mentioned, I, you know, I mentioned various influences and, and just being exposed to the idea of a startup in healthcare and, and seeing patients, you know, seeing people doing that and doctors transitioning and that sort of thing. I was exposed to it and many people aren't. So I think that was, that was obviously an obvious factor. Um, I'm not necessarily recommending this path. <laughs> it's a little bit messy. It's risky. I mean, you know, an obvious point is my income was not the only income coming into the family. So I had the flexibility and the freedom, which many people don't have. Um, I probably wouldn't be as, as risk tolerant as I was um, if that weren't the case. Um, Cause it does take a leap of faith. Uh, you're not you're not going to be continuing with your neurosurgeon salary on day one of your startup. So that's, you know, that's something you have to tolerate. So it was a bit, bit of a messy process, a bit serendipitous, a bit who did I happen to meet and, and you know, what did I happen to, um, you know, we happened upon this patent portfolio, for example, that was that was quite interesting. So that uh, that is serendipitous. The, the writing is more of a hobby. That's that's something that I'm continuing to this day as a hobby. I'm currently writing the second draft of of a novel where the 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 um, main character is a neurosurgeon. So that's kind of in the hobby category. If it's successful, maybe it'll be beyond a hobby. But at this point, <laughs> I can only hope to have it as a as a fun hobby. Um, but uh, I don't know what's going to be next. I think the idea of reinvention is is going to become more and more a key concept. I think in people's lives as as people either want to get out of the workforce earlier or people are living longer, healthier lives. I think even retiring at 65, you have to think about reinvention because if you're a smart, creative, successful person, sure, you're going to enjoy golf and tennis and travel and, and whatnot, but you're probably going to be itching to do something else. And so the idea of reinvention, I think, whether you're doing it at age 40 or age 70, I think is a really interesting thing you should kind of plan for and, and think about ahead of time. That's really cool. And you kind of touch into my my last question that I that I ask everybody is is I guess in addition to writing, what what else are your your hobbies outside of uh your work? How do you find that balance if there is one? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, spending time with family is an obvious one. I have a daughter and a husband that you know, we we love to travel, but on a day-to-day -day basis, um I love cooking. I'm not great. I'm not a great cook, but it I think um satisfies some of my surgical interests in a procedure. I love getting everything organized. And it's almost like setting up the, the table with the, the mise en place and chopping everything and, and you know, trying to improvise a little bit here and there and, and make it good. That's a very satisfying hobby that not only benefits me, but benefits others if it turns out right. So I love that as a hobby. And it's kind of something that's obvious as in terms of lifelong learning, taking classes and, and trying to, you know, hone the craft. So 
it's it's a fun one. That's awesome. That's awesome. And yeah, we'll we'll definitely have to keep an eye out for your your next book. That's that, that's really exciting. Um, well, thank you again for joining us, taking time out of your busy schedule. I guess the last thing is, how can people find more about what you know what you're you know what you're doing? Connect with you, and then also um, you know with Health Prize, you know, learn more and uh, even get involved with the with the company. Sure. Well, it's uh, the the Health Prize website is just healthprize.com, one word, healthprize.com. And I have an author website that you can contact me through katrinafurlick.com. So that's the easiest way to to contact me through through that site. Awesome. We will definitely link those in the description. And again, thank, thank you again, Katrina. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Maxwell. It was fun. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Da Vinci Hour podcast presented by Da Vinci Academy. Please be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow the podcast on your podcast platform of choice to catch the latest episodes. Please leave a comment or review and share it with a friend. Lastly, you can find all of our podcasts, video courses, and books on our website, dviacademy.com. Thank you for listening.